This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for December 7th, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Today, we're also joined by Matsifada Shlakwayo-Davis. Mati is an infectious disease physician who's been deeply engaged with HIV, particularly in marginalized communities. This work led her to be named Director of the Department of Health for the City of St. Louis over a year ago. Mati is also an associate editor for the Disparities and Culturally Competent Care section of the Real-Time Learning Network. And she's been a public spokesperson on many public health issues, particularly HIV and COVID. But before we talk about those diseases, Mati, I'd like to talk about your background. You grew up in Harare, Zimbabwe, a place that was disproportionately affected by the HIV epidemic. How did your experience there affect your thinking on HIV today? It absolutely framed everything I do. I was one of those children growing up in Harare who really struggled with what I was going to do. I was very fortunate enough to be one of those people that was good at a lot of things and not truly excellent at one thing. But it was the death of one of the matriarchs of my family when I was a child, a woman that everyone in our family looked up to. And you need to understand that funerals in my culture are celebratory occasions. They last sometimes almost up to a week. And it was the first thing that impressed me about the funeral of this great, great matriarch, this woman who cooked meals and instilled so much wisdom in all of us when we would visit her house, was that it was a one-day muted affair. And I remember being 11 or 12 and sitting in a pew in the church and just wondering why. Why was this funeral so different from what was so true to our culture? And only found out years later as an adult that she was one of the first people that we knew of from our family who died from HIV. And it is symbolic to me of the stigma, the shame that surrounded HIV in a culture that would be deemed conservative by many. And for me, as a young woman who had very few female role models, to have one stripped of her dignity, even in death to that extent, was a defining moment for me. And so I grew up in a country where when HIV hit my country, it decimated our working population. Children were taken care of by grandfathers. The national age that people lived to went down to 42 years of age, if you can imagine that. And so it had a significant impact on my life and was the reason why, for me, it was always going to be infectious diseases and specifically the care of people living with HIV. So then turning to COVID, before COVID, many infectious diseases disproportionately affected poor and minority communities. And you have, as you say, lots of experience working with people with HIV. How has that experience shaped your thinking about COVID? Yeah, you know, when you think about infectious diseases, this is what we're made for, right? This is this is what we do. We live for epidemics and pandemics. One of my favorite jokes is that um, I have to stop having children because every time I've been pregnant, I've ushered in a major pandemic or epidemic. First year fellow, Ebola. Then as a third year fellow, pregnant with our first child, Zika. And I remember my OB-GYN doctor's visits. I had to block out the first 10 minutes to be a consultant for my doctor for her pregnant patients. And then I was seven months pregnant at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. And so I joke that this is it for me because I care too much about humanity as a whole. But it just impresses upon me that I am proud to be in a discipline 
for which this is what we do. In some ways, infectious diseases training prepared me for COVID, even though I didn't know it was coming. Just that experience that every two to three years, ID docs are bracing themselves to really help shape policy, clinical, and research practices around whatever epidemic or pandemic there is. But we all heard the comparisons. We've all heard Dr. Fauci be asked time and time again how he felt the HIV epidemic that we all know hit the United States in 1985 compares to now. And there's a lot of comparisons. But chief amongst them, unfortunately, even between HIV and COVID, is these disparities that affect minoritized communities, Black and brown communities. And so I don't know if, in answer to your question, it was how it shaped my thinking, but certainly as a woman whose intersectionality as a Black woman immigrant, to see, once again, Black and brown communities disproportionately affected when those terrible, terrible statistics that we all saw, right, cases, hospitalizations, and deaths be so much greater in Black and brown communities. And for those of us from those communities to know that there was nothing new about that, that time and time again, we see the same pattern, right? Even with monkeypox, started in the LGBTQIA plus community. And I remember calling doctors in Chicago as I was bracing St. Louis because there were a couple of weeks ahead of us on the epi curve. And they said, yeah, we're already seeing the disproportionate impact in black and brown communities. So that's what it was for me, was just not wanting to see that same pattern play and for people in my community specifically to lose their lives once again. Mati, do you think that the sorts of outreach that you've done to these communities who are affected by HIV has helped you? Have you learned lessons that have been useful for the COVID epidemic? Absolutely. I've been very fortunate to be a part of a truly unique model for community-engaged care in St. Louis. So, you know, obviously by training, I'm an ID doc, but public health has always been my passion. I refer to myself as a public health warrior, and I was the founding co-director of the Fast Track Cities Initiative here in St. Louis that brings together grassroots organizations, local city and county health departments, and the mayor's office to come together to one table and truly think about how to break down silos and really cross what have typically been barriers. And I believe that that experience, plus the fact that I was actively taking care of people living with HIV, right? I was the one in clinic and created a new model because I realized that the way that we do clinical practice doesn't make sense, right? Making people wait for an hour, giving them these 15-minute slots, and then expecting them, especially again in minoritized communities, to stay another hour to talk to a case manager, a nurse. And so would bring a team with me. I would bring case managers. I would bring nurses. I would bring behavioral health volunteer specialists into the room and would get feedback from patients that they'd never seen anyone care about this model of care. So I took that clinical model into the community and really thinking about how we break down silos, meet people where they are with HIV. And I think a few things, very simple, but very impactful is Boy, academics, we love to hear the sound of our own voice. We talk at patients, not with them. So one of my superpowers is being able to listen, but I love taking complex issues and making them accessible, treating every patient like a VIP. Nothing used to irk me more than hearing, oh, we have a VIP patient. And I used to think as a Black person in a hospital, a Black clinician, why should that be any different? 
it was this model of understanding that public health and medicine coupled makes such a difference. And then it was interventions that were both education and programmatic that really prepared me as a director of health and thinking about how to reach people and how it had to be about both education and actual programmatic intervention. And Madi, as you sort of think about these adaptations and responses, how do you think about the similarities and differences in infectious diseases like HIV, which is a chronic illness, and COVID, which is largely an acute severe respiratory illness? Are there big differences in how you're engaging the public health and the community response? You know, from a basic science perspective, you would expect that there would be large differences. But from a public health perspective, they're not that different. When I take myself back to when we were rolling out vaccines and that preparation time, we did surveys. I remember Kaiser putting out a survey that was so jarring to me, where we asked folks in the community, if we had a COVID vaccine ready for you right now, would you take it? And the margin of difference in Black and brown communities, 60% of folks in Black communities, when we asked them that in about August through October of 2020, was no. And when you looked at white communities, the difference was so stark. We're talking to the magnitudes of 20 to 30% difference, right? And so it impressed upon me the valid mistrust and distrust that we have in communities of color because of historic and current issues around systematic and structural racism, which we know is a public health crisis, and around those social and structural determinants of health that make their experience in government research and clinical agencies so much different from other communities. And so when you think about it that way, and you think about then the fact that stigma became a part of COVID-19, right? Whether or not you took a vaccine and how that played out in your homes, in communities, masking, whether you chose to wear a mask and how that played out in homes, in communities, at the grocery store. There's so much similarity there and in how we address sexually transmitted infections, including HIV, that I really think prepares someone in the public health sphere for that education portion as well. When you think about rolling out of vaccines, how we get those into arms, large scale, when we you know, open a dome and bring 20,000 people at one time at the beginning of the pandemic. And now when I have to be thoughtful about trusted messengers and the fact that the largest time that I've given out vaccines here, even though I'm now a nationally and internationally renowned speaker around HIV and COVID, is when I partnered with Pastor Burke in North City in January of 2022. And as, as an African, I'll tell you, that's not a game, right? Like That's like deep snow, cold temperatures, cars for blocks waiting to get communion through a car window to be encouraged by Pastor Burke and then to get their COVID-19 vaccine, not because they knew me from a bar of soap, but because they knew Pastor Burke, trusted Pastor Burke, and were willing to do so. So in a public health sphere, the differences are not so different because we have to think about the same when we partner with the same clergy advisory board for HIV and sexual health, for example. As RSV and flu are surging, are these techniques and approaches being utilized in your communities in response to these other pathogens? Absolutely. And this is where I am such a fan and will forever say that local public health is really the bedrock of public health right now. Because while we are failing to use the same structures and lessons at a federal level, I have to say, 
to learn for new threats like monkeypox. Now with RSV, flu, and COVID, all the threats for this winter season already, our pandemic task force right here in St. Louis said, let's keep the same structure. Sure, it's a COVID-19 pandemic task force, but look at how it served us to bring hospital leaders and local public health leaders and local epidemiologists together to discuss what is happening and what our best approach is. So literally yesterday, it's like you teed me up. We convened the COVID-19 pandemic task force. We heard from all the different hospitals in the region, all the different public health leaders in the region, epidemiologists threw up the data. And within an hour long meeting, we had come together with aligned messaging around this triple threat that we're currently facing to make sure that we are responsibly making people really focus on the focal message. Here at the Department of Health, we put together press kits, really learning from that old model. But one of the things I specifically brought up at that pandemic task force is, guys, people are burnt out. I mean, we went from a COVID-19 pandemic and now we want them to care about respiratory illnesses again. They're not trying to hear that. So the question and the challenge was, how can we be innovative in the way that we communicate in, in education? How do we break through that very high defense barrier where people are like, we're done. We gave you two and a half years of our life at high alert, and you want us to do this again for another winter? No, our kids are going to school. They're going to go unmasked, and we don't want to hear it. So how do I take this alarming data where we're looking at a 600% increase just in the last month? around these numbers here in St. Louis, how do we make that translatable to parents, to people in communities? How do we protect the old and the immunocompromised knowing where people are at right now? And if we don't, if we don't focus in on those lessons that we learned from COVID and then challenge ourselves to build upon them, we will fail our communities. Mati, you've moved from positions where you studied approaches to health equity to one today where you are responsible for creating and putting into place policies to address those issues. So what priorities do you have and how do you see yourself putting them into place? So for me, I think it was being very intentional about thinking about where we've gone historically from diversity and inclusion to diversity, equity and inclusion to health equity and really understanding what the difference is and understanding from the theory to the application. And one of the things that's been most important for me is building something here from a strategic plan with a clear implementation plan that has built into it accountability and timelines for health equity. And that means not doing what we have done and therefore have failed in academia, having a person who's hired to do the work of DEI, having a person without budget, by the way, and usually leaning into the very communities that are oppressed to do the work of fixing the oppression, (laughs) don't get me started there, but without budget, without protected time, without truly integrating that into every facet of what we do. So here in my public health department, every aspect, right, whether my executive leadership team have to be trained, we have to be talking about these things. Every program, there have to be metrics that we track and we follow and we hold ourselves accountable to as to how we're doing with health equity. But it's also about, as a leader, There has never been a health equity plan for the city of St. Louis, and I'm proud to say that we have in hand the first ever 40-page draft that we are working with a consultant and a team of implementation and dissemination scientists. And this is what I call the reparations that academic centers can provide 
to black and brown communities by partnering with local public health to bring these sort of much needed initiatives. And what that 40 page document looks like is really being thoughtful about what is the data, what is the policy, but most importantly, what is the implementation and who does that involve? It has to involve the very leaders who have done this work for decades without funding, without support, but through sheer will and the trust of their communities. And somehow finding a way to coordinate a group of people that couldn't be more divergent, couldn't be more different in their approach, but in understanding that if we don't find a way to really bring all of those skill sets to the table, this work doesn't happen. And so if you were to ask me what I'm proudest of, it is that I've moved from that place of theoretical to a place of implementation, and that all of those skills and talents that I built through my training as an ID doc, my training in public health, actual clinical practice has now come together in such an amazing way. And I have to make the plug for, this is one of the worst fellowship matches that infectious diseases has ever seen. Couldn't be more heartbreaking for us infectious diseases doc coming out of leading not only our nation, but truly the world in many areas in infectious diseases and to see the level of disinvestment in ID at the same time that there is such an overwhelming disinvestment in public health. I am the director of health for a major U.S. city, but I only have 1% of the city's budget. By comparison, the Forest and Parks Division has 4% of the budget of the city and public safety 52%. This is while I live in a state that is 50th in the U.S. for per head spending on public health. We only invest $7 per head here in public health. So it's that level of disinvestment that impresses upon me how important it is to have someone of my expertise, someone of my intersectionality, someone of my emotional intelligence, and someone who truly cares and prioritizes health equity because Black and brown communities couldn't need it more. Madi, you bring up a subject that's close to our hearts for both Lindsay and I, and that is the profession of infectious disease and how the number of applications to programs have been dropping. And they're dropping largely because it's a lot of work, not that well paid as compared to other medical subspecialties. What do you see as some of the solutions for trying to attract the kinds of people that you're talking about into infectious disease? Oh, thank you so much for that question, Eric. But we cannot start with attract. We have to start with national federal agencies understanding the importance of infectious diseases. When this country was facing the biggest threat of its time, it leaned into one of our giants in ID. That alone should let you know, yes, there has to be an investment in ID. And that has to be looked at across the board and how we pay and how we subsidize. So we have to be thoughtful about the structures of pay and the structures of investment around ID before we start talking about how we attract young people. It is completely unreasonable and quite frankly unfair to ask young people that have lengthen their time and training compared to their counterparts who are, you know, thriving adults with large savings in their accounts who are buying houses and we are still students living very much like we were in undergrad for this training that is exhausting, that encompasses every aspect of medicine, right? There is no service that doesn't call ID. To be asked to do so with anywhere from 100000 to $300,000 in debt and to be compensated as much and sometimes less as nurse practitioners are. It is not fair to ask young people to do that when many of them, especially when you start looking at people like me who are oftentimes in our discipline, I was the only black person in my division. 
And then I was tokenized, asked to be in the pictures, asked to be in the interviews, asked to come speak to this Black patient or that Black patient, asked to come to sit on every DEI committee, to then add that burden on minoritized communities who you know are likely have much higher burden of responsibilities for taking care of family members and so many amongst them. And so we cannot talk about attracting until we talk about this at a grassroots foundational level. And that is, do we actually honor the work of ID? And if so, how does that look as it pertains to policy, research dollars, and actual compensation? And then when we're in our institutions, are we thoughtful about the way we mentor and sponsor folks in ID and minoritize folks in ID? Are we providing them with equitable advancement and promotion? Are we protecting their time to do the work of idea of community engagement of public health? Are we actually investing in these things? If not, we will continue to lose folks. This will not be the beginning year. This, this is just the beginning of an ongoing pattern because we do not provide the incentive and the opportunity for young people who truly love this discipline to do it. And quite frankly, and unfortunately, I am both an example of how important and diverse ID can be in the role that I play. ID docs are needed in the type of spheres I am, but I'm unfortunately also an example of someone who left because of self-advocacy and many of the issues that we're talking about in this very question. Madi, you commented on how your department is supported, you know, 1% of the budget versus 50% in other arenas. I'm struck by the use of terms, public health, public safety. Two and a half years ago, society was shut down because of COVID. Isn't the work you do in public health really public safety? And how do we make that argument and make the issues clear to our leaders so the proper support comes to the infrastructure needed to protect and enable the health of the public? The listeners can't see, but I'm just shaking my head and nodding vigorously because that's the exact issue. The fact that we don't even understand that foundationally public health is public safety, right? Um, that we value public safety and so many other things before we value public health. So Dr. Chu and I wrote an editorial for BMJ a few weeks ago. We were asked to write an editorial around the midterms and how public health showed up or did not show up. And what was so interesting to me is when you asked U.S. voters in the midterms what the most important topics were, public health was so far down the line. We have a health and public health literacy problem in this country that is supported by an inability for political leadership to understand the importance of public health. And there are public health giants. Dr. Chan at Hopkins has one of my favorite quotes around the fact that political leaders should be expected expected to have foundational training in public health to really understand very, very well-documented research around the fact that when we do not have healthy workforces, the economy suffers. So even if you rightfully believe that the economy, that jobs, that gun safety, that all of these issues should be priorities in our community, you have to understand that public health is the bedrock of all of those things. You cannot have people cutting down trees 4% of the budget in St. Louis if they're sick or dead, right? You cannot have a thriving police force if they're sick or dead. And, and how did we not learn this from COVID? Just the lockdown itself and the impact that it had on the community shows 
that the inability to have an active, present, thriving workforce hurts our economy. And yet, that doesn't translate. And yet, even here in St. Louis, when the mayor's office does a survey asking folks what their priorities for ARPA dollars, which by definition are COVID-19 funds, by the way, should be, public health wasn't even thought of. It was fix our streets, pick up our trash, defund the police, you know, restructure the police, but nothing in their frame of understanding even thought of public health. So we have to start with re-educating the public, but this sits on our political leaders, the NIH, the CDC, all these large bodies have to really come together and reimagine how we frame public health as a priority, how we make people understand how integrated it is into every fiber of what we do, and then how we put funding and policy behind that to back it and to really support communities. My talent, quite frankly, and the talent of my overwhelmed public health department is wasted in St. Louis because I do not have the resources necessary to do the work that we need to do. Speaking of resources, Madi, to look at this in brass tacks, as COVID funding now wanes, and the focus of government is on other priorities, as you've mentioned. What is the impact of decreasing federal funding on your work in your city? And what are the implications for other cities in our response to these ongoing epidemics? I'm so disappointed in the on and off switch leadership that we had and thought process that we had around COVID-19 in this country. Because the very communities that we love to say we support, right? The most vulnerable, minoritized communities, our elderly, are immediately left behind. When COVID-19 dollars dry up, I am not empowered to do what I did six months ago, which is understand that even though the federal government made such a great effort in addressing access and equity and put N95 masks and at-home test kits in pharmacies to make them more accessible, I was able to say we have zip code level data that shows us that pharmacy deserts are a real thing in black and brown communities. And so the very people that we're trying to help don't get those interventions as easily. So I was able to use those federal dollars to immediately bridge that gap, to buy N95 masks, to have a policy here in St. Louis where we prioritized those uh, by zip code level data, those communities, put them in libraries, put them in rec centers. We were able to say to our teachers, we value you, we value your lives, and we know you're trying to keep school open. So here you go. We're going to make sure you have N95s and at-home test kits. And the moment that off switch happened, we immediately get cut off from being able to do that. And so the impact is immediate and devastating in the very communities that are disproportionately affected, that are disproportionately affected over a myriad of diseases. And so we continue to create that divide when we're so limited in our leadership and our thinking, and we're not brave enough to not worry about what approval ratings will look like and re-election cycles will look like. When we truly start to think about using our platforms and our opportunity, because I'm not gonna be here forever, I know that. But let me tell you something, for the time that I'm here, I'm gonna shake things up. I'm gonna leave this place better than I started much needed organizational infrastructure, bringing a platform to public health that I have not seen my city and my region have before. That has to be the work, not me setting myself up for the next thing. And unfortunately, that's the perception that a lot of us who are doing this work and who quite frankly are broken. I have colleagues who have left. The number of resignations 
in health director positions in the time that I've been here. The turnover, I've broken records in hiring since I've been here. So I've hired close to 60 people in the one year that I've been in the city. And at the same time, I've lost 41. I want you for a moment to understand what that type of turnover looks like. If we do not start investing in public health, in health equity, and in leaders who are willing to prioritize that over the now, over the quick, over the fast, we're in real trouble. And so that impact was immediate and is already devastating. So Madi, you talk about educating the public. And of course, much of your job now is communicating with the general public. How do you do that? How do you get the message across? Um, a few things. Number one, I think like the public. When I first started to take opportunities to speak to the public, I remember being in academics. I remember there used to be local news agencies that would call and they would call me and they would say, hey, we'd like to interview you about this topic, flu or, you know, winter's coming, we want to talk to someone in your department about flu. And my imposter syndrome would immediately say, that can't be me. That has to be this leader, right? And so all people saw in the community were wonderful, amazing. These are my colleagues. These are my mentors, but old white men right, <laughs> dominated the news cycle as they do at a national and international level. So when I started to see these disproportionate statistics coming from my community and I would turn on the news, I didn't even see ID docs outside of Dr. Fauci and maybe one or two others. When you saw physicians being interviewed, they were my colleagues, well-respected colleagues, but I didn't even see my discipline represented. And then I'm looking and I'm not seeing Black people, Black people of excellence, Black people who are not just representation, because a lot of people love to distill down what I do to, oh, she's Black and so she's accessible. No, I'm excellent and I'm Black. And that's so important for our communities to know and see that representation because that breaks down barriers. So I knew that just visually, it was important for my community to see someone who can wear a head wrap on CNN, who can wear Bantu knots on CNN. I had young Black girls saying to me, I've never seen Bantu knots right, who would pick out her fro and wear a print on national and international TV. Al Jazeera, the, the, the letters, handwritten letters and DMs I would get from Black people across the globe from this experience, I don't think I'll ever forget what that was and how it impressed upon me the importance in our community. But beyond that, we give in our disciplines and academia, people get promoted because they're good usually at research and they become leaders. That doesn't always translate to leadership qualities, people who know how to talk to people, how to manage people, and how to make people feel valued. That's my superpower. I know how to talk to people. I know how to make people laugh. I know how to take really hard, dense topics. I could read a New England Journal of Medicine article, and I know how to take that into North St. Louis and speak about it in accessible ways. So some of the things that I do that I think are so important for us to consider when we're talking to people is number one, listen really go into communities and don't assume you know what they need, ask them what they need, and then talk to them in accessible ways. Ask an open-ended question. So at the beginning of COVID-19, I came out of maternity leave and I hit my clinic in August of 2020. And I said, I'm going to dedicate 10 minutes, the last 10 minutes of every patient encounter to asking my patients if they had any questions or concerns about COVID or the vaccine. So I did that from 2020 until I took this job at the end of 2021. For a whole year, I had this experiential data and learned so much from it. I learned that people's concerns and thoughts couldn't be distilled down to the articles we were writing and reading that made it seem like monolithic views, 
they were so divergent. And I needed to give them an opportunity to just say what was on their mind without interrupting them, without lecturing them, without standing at the bedpost and talking down to them. It's also about making people feel comfortable because they're already so defensive about a topic, right? So sitting at eye level, I don't wear a white coat, really making them feel comfortable. And then after hearing them with that open-ended question, really letting them talk before I talk at them, it's about making it accessible. And for me, I was a mom at the time. I had a baby at the beginning of the pandemic. So I would talk about my fears. I would talk about the fact that I actually am really scared of needles. So while I was weaving in the data and the sort of the academic thoughts, I would also talk about it from a really accessible way as well. But I think those are a few of the things that I think about when I think about my approach to communication and education. So Madi, um, I also struggle with those dense New England Journal articles. <laughs> I think that an issue that you raise, which we struggle with, and I would love your perspective on how we at the journal, but also we as medical communicators can better communicate with our community, particularly around like an issue of vaccine hesitancy. We're looking at polio, measles, influenza, as well as SARS-CoV-2, where we have vaccines that are highly effective, yet there's tremendous hesitancy in the community. What should we as a journal be doing? What should we as medical practitioners be doing to help address this incredibly frustrating dynamic in society? Well, I'll start by saying this. Five years ago, I would not be on this podcast. Ten years ago, it would be laughable for someone like me to be on this podcast. But today, you prioritized a Black woman immigrant four years out of fellowship, who is the health director for a city health department. That alone shows me that the New England Journal is evolving and is changing and cares about equity. Because just by having me here today, it'll be a while till I write an article that makes it to publication in New England, right? But you finally have understood that excellence is diverse. And it can't be measured by the same archaic metrics that we have to use and should use. And so what I'm trying to say is I don't think the New England needs to dilute down or change how it approaches its metrics to its journals. But I do think what you're doing today and really being innovative and thoughtful about how you bring other types of excellence to the table to educate your listeners and to inform your approach. I've been so encouraged even by the type of op-eds that you publish, because I'll be honest with you, I bring a lot to the table, but there's nothing about me that wants to do anything that resembles basic science, um, translational science or clinical research. Never wanted to. This right here, what I'm doing, has always been what I wanted to do. Never felt empowered to. Tried to put myself into a box that I did not fit into. And because the metrics for success were monolithic, and excellent. My best friend is one of, oh, is this such an amazing basic science researcher? I always look at him and I'm like, Jason, I will never do what you do. I will never be as successful as you in that arena. And I don't want to. And he looks at me and can appreciate, man, what you're doing is so impactful and incredible, but I never want to do that. And I think continuing to push yourselves into really diversifying what excellent means so that young people like me who are coming into ID can see that they too can attain a New England Journal of Medicine opportunity. This my first, right? And this would have never been feasible. I wouldn't even have my name adjacent to New England Journal of Medicine if you all hadn't thought about innovating 
around how to bring other excellent and diverse voices to the table. And that's what it's about. So constantly holding yourselves accountable to the type of papers you're accepting, why or why not you're accepting them, and should there be changes? Because are you keeping excellent voices from the table? People who do this work every day in community, people who have figured out how to educate and talk to the public and really do the implementation side of this in the way that some of us do, continuing to push the envelope. But man, just this today, when I got that email, I had to really sit at my desk for a little bit and think, wow, wow, how times have changed because this would not have happened 10 years ago. Well, well, thanks, Madi. Checks in the mail. But um, <laughs> I, I want to get back to public health. Recently, we've had a number of epidemics, as you've described, and we've had some successes. For example, we've had successes in controlling many of the Ebola outbreaks, although there's one ongoing right now in Uganda. And we've had some success, I would say mixed success in COVID. Perhaps a big success, though, has been the recent monkeypox or mpox outbreak, where the outbreak does seem to be being brought under control through a variety of measures, many of them public health interventions in the communities that are being affected. So what are the lessons you take from mpox and how can you apply them to some of these other diseases or the next epidemic that comes along? Yeah, I think it's such a great question. You know, we immediately took the lessons that we'd learned and some of the infrastructure we'd put in place around COVID and mobilized it. We knew immediately. I mean, every public health director in the country was probably triggered in thinking about how late we were in rolling out vaccines and in being thoughtful about the how. So when I saw the overwhelming disparity and the shocking numbers in vaccine availability as a local health director, I already knew what that meant, right? I already knew that the public were going to be in an uproar, that they were asking. So we shifted to an aggressive education campaign and prepped St. Louis. And one of the first things we did was in seeing, I mean, 99% of people with MPOX in the beginning were male. Of that 99%, 94% were in MSMs. And then, again, I talked about this earlier in calling my partners who are in the epic curve a few weeks ahead of me and hearing it was going to hit black and brown communities. There was no excuse for me not to prepare. We immediately put together a comprehensive education plan. We had pamphlets. We had an anti-stigma campaign for MPOX in knowing what we had learned from 1985 in the LGBTQIA plus community. I held a two and a half hour summit with 30 local LGBTQIA plus and black leaders in St. Louis just to listen, to say, what are you worried about? What is the community need right now? And they informed my approach. My success in St. Louis is because I was humble enough to lean into the community and to ask community leaders. That summit immediately had me have a listserv. And when it was time to do outreach and mobilize, we were able to get 20,000 pamphlets in one day out to LGBTQIA plus grassroots communities. We printed 30,000 color pamphlets around an anti-stigma campaign in English and in Spanish for a back to school event at the Dome. We had a town hall where people were just able to come and immediately interface, not only with their local health director, but a woman who's also an infectious diseases doctor and how safe that made the community stay. And I stayed on that Zoom. It was only supposed to be an hour. They stayed for an hour and a half because they wanted to talk about and ask questions. But in the background, I used my position to work with Congresswoman Cori Bush's office, to work with HRSA, 
to really advocate to the CDC around getting those vaccines to us quicker. There was a time about three weeks into MPOX truly having global impact that my state had 256 vaccines for the entire state. And so we were doing PEP and we're lucky PEP plus plus approach, which was completely unacceptable. After a two and a half year pandemic where we knew better, how, how were we that ill prepared? But I had bought myself time to really focus on education until we got vaccines. And when we got them, we still didn't have enough, but we were able to run with efficiency, again, using the same blueprint that we did for COVID vaccinations. We had the largest regional vaccine clinic. We vaccinated 400 people in a 48-hour period, right downstairs, right in this building. And so I do think that, again, local public health doesn't get enough credit. And the people that I serve, the people that I um, am so fortunate to work in my team, are paid less than minimum wage, are burnt out, are doing the job of three people, and yet flatten the curve for MPOX in a way that none of us expected. We all thought this was going to be a disaster. But the last plug I'll make is I will never call the MPOX approach a success because I must also make it abundantly clear that since the 1970s, MPOX has ravaged Black communities in Africa and no one has cared. And only when it hit high-income countries and predominantly white communities did we care and did we again use that metric for success, how they were impacted and how they were saved. And so in as much as we failed in a global equity perspective from COVID, and there still is that huge divide in global vaccine equity, I will never call a public health approach a success until we care about the most vulnerable communities that are impacted. And we start to use our metrics for success when they have started to see the impact that they have needed since the 1970s. Madi, I think you highlight the challenge of successful public health. If we as a community had risen to the challenge in the 90s with smallpox eradication, monkeypox cases emerging in countries in sub-Saharan Africa to properly go in and prevent further spread, then this global event this last year would never have happened. And it's difficult to appreciate the bad things that don't happen. However, doing the right thing should speak for itself. And I think that's a real challenge as we think about infectious diseases and global spread, how doing the right thing today, anywhere in the world with an infectious disease threat, has future benefit, even though we may not measure it because the bad thing doesn't happen. And that's absolutely right. I think the reason I'm so passionate about the disinvestment in ID right now, the fellowship match and in public health is that both infectious diseases as a discipline and public health, our jobs every day are just to literally help the most vulnerable amongst us. And to see that not prioritized is so difficult. And so we put people who have great hearts in a position to do other things. And that is devastating. Let us invest in ID, let us invest in public health and allow folks who truly love this work to do it and to impact the communities we want to serve. And let's let other people do the work that they do. You know, I have a lot of basic science partners who say to me, God, I love partnering with you because you allow me to do what I do. And without them, we don't have this innovation and this movement and these breakthroughs in medicine. But without us, without the implementation, what's the point? So we have to make the prioritization more equitable. We have to reimagine what this looks like so that the work that is done at the bench is not in vain. 
Thank you, Mahdi, for joining us today. And as always, thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.